Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Ten years ago, today, protests broke out in Cairo. What came to be known as the Arab Spring was rapidly gaining momentum. Eleven days earlier, Egyptians had watched as Tunisia's strongman ruler, Ben Ali, had fled the country after more than two decades in power, forced out by a month of protests and unrest. Egypt had been under the rule of the Mubarak regime for even longer. Could this be their moment to grasp freedom and democracy? Emboldened, Egyptian protesters took to the streets. But the upheaval in Egypt didn't end with the Arab Spring of 2011. After democratic elections were held, the Muslim Brotherhood came to power. Mohamed Morsi is the candidate of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's the first Islamist head of state to be elected out of these Arab Spring revolutions. Two years later, there was another murderous, bloody revolution as a military coup seized the country. A dramatic showdown between Egypt's military and the ousted president. Once again, millions of citizens have taken to the streets in Cairo. We speak to someone who's been on the front line of the profound political changes of the last decade. The editor of Egypt's last major independent news site. It's inevitable to have fear. It's another thing to also know how to navigate it, to maneuver it, uh, park it on the side when you're just about to engage in a risky endeavor. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Arab Spring, 10 years on, Egypt. Today, we hear a journalist's story. Lina Atala, the founder and editor of Mother Masa, takes us on a tour of three key dates in the last decade. Three days that changed history and her life forever. We start where it all began, January the 25th, 2011. I'm uh, a journalist. I'm based in Egypt and I uh, run Madamos, uh, which is uh, a Cairo-based news media. 
we spoke to Lena from her flat in Cairo, on the west bank of the Nile. That, I'm sorry about that noise, this is Egypt, this is Cairo. The 25th of January 2011 was a difference of extent of scope of the protests, but ever since I joined university in 2000, there were mounting protests after a period of political dormancy in Egypt in the 1990s. This, this contentious politics movement started uh, in the early 2000s with solidarity movements with the Palestinian Intifada, later on with the uh, war in Iraq, and then soon enough, around the you know, early, mid-2000s, it became about domestic matters. There were protests against police brutality, there were pro-democracy protests. Hosni Mubarak had been president of Egypt since 1981. Those three decades were marked by repression, corruption and economic hardship. Whilst most lived in extreme poverty, the Mubarak family was known for its excesses. If people objected and criticised the regime, they could face torture and imprisonment. Mubarak had made many enemies, which led to six assassination attempts whilst he was leader. On Tuesday, January the 25th, 2011, 27-year-old Lena was working as the editor of a newspaper called the Egypt Independent. She'd seen hundreds of protests before and knew they never really amounted to anything. Her paper didn't even have journalists on the ground when demonstrations began, but as the day went on, it became obvious that these protests were different. So the protests grew bigger and bigger that day. Um, so I found myself having to go down myself to check it out. But Lena didn't make it down to Tahrir Square, where the protesters had gathered and the crowds had grown. Security forces started arresting people there randomly. They tried to arrest me. They dragged me on the ground, they punched me on the face, broke my glasses. Wow. This was the moment where I felt, OK, this is big. Uh, I never get beaten up at protests. Nobody ever pays attention to me. And my glasses just got broken. So this calls for a new site altogether. Lena says she isn't usually big on metaphors. But as her glasses shattered, she couldn't ignore the symbolism. She felt like she was seeing the world anew, seeing new possibilities, the weeks that followed were a heady mix of angry, righteous protests and utopian hopes. After recovering from her injuries for a few days, Lena finally made it down to Tahrir Square. I only managed to go there to get there four or five days later when I could stand on my feet again. And it was packed like never before. You could barely find a space to walk, and it's a huge square. It would be super packed uh, on actual days of protest, but there was a sit-in, and the sit-in was like a temporary uh, life transfer to the square. So we would sleep in the square, we'd wake up in tents, we'd wake up in the morning, there would be some morning activities, 
morning activities would include doing some workouts uh, while also chanting against the regime. There would be also some cultural activities and also a lot of organic chatters and conversations. I was there for most of the day because my job was the revolution, basically. It was more than just an event to cover. It was a paradigm shift in language, in journalism, in the way we work together, in, in the way we divide our time between being on the square and being on our desks, typing up stories and so on. It felt like the excitement of newness, of, of grasping something new as it was unfolding. It felt like trying out a lot of different new things all at a time. And there was an immense sense of possibility in this energy. In terms of the protests, everybody was, you know, calling for an end to the government and for the resignation of Hosni Mubarak. Remind us, what sort of a president had he been? By the time I grew up and became an adult and started reckoning with such things as power and whatnot, it was clear to me that Mubarak was doing the a very conventional game of mixing up different brands of power together in one pot. He wasn't just acting to me like the chief executive, but he was also acting like the patriarch, like the father, like the head of the family. It would reflect also in the way politics was, uh, was practiced by him and by his close allies, practiced in such a way where they know best what would work for us, and the best thing for us is not to worry about politics and to leave politics to them. What do you think gave it that momentum? You know, as you say, there had been a decade of protests of, of people feeling that the government wasn't governing for them. What gave this the spark that turned it into a, a revolution? I think uh, the fact that we saw it unfolding and happening in Tunisia and sort of working was enough reason for us to believe that it can also be possible. Did it feel like journalism was almost a political activity? It was always a political activity for me from even before the revolution. I had no qualms in reconciling or recognizing the facts that I chose to engage with politics through the lens of journalism. It meant for me a huge privilege to be able to witness such a moment at such proximity and to be part of it. And I feel like this is what stays with me up until now, uh, this possibility of shifting. And I think that this is a dynamism that we need in order to keep going, even in the most dire of conditions. That's so interesting. Does it still feel to you like nothing is really set in stone? Anything could be changed? I believe so, yes. A fortnight later, the crowds got their wish. President Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down. President Hosni Mubarak has President Hosni Mubarak has decided to step down as president of Egypt, and he has decided that the Higher Council of the Armed Forces will lead the nation. Where were you and, and what was it like the moment you realised there was going to be a change? So Mubarak finally resigned under this massive pressure on the 11th of February. 
I was on the square when the news spread and I felt I felt back then that now is the time for even more work that it felt like we needed to just go back to our offices to our groups to our organizing in order to think of okay if there's a possibility of rebuilding from there how to start and what to do so this is this was the feeling i was on the square i couldn't be that ecstatic about it it was also super crowded uh, so i felt like the crowd can be happy with the news but my mind was already preoccupied with what needs to happen next After Mubarak stepped down, the military took control of the country, suspended the constitution and dissolved parliament. The military have made a series of statements guaranteeing a proper transition of power to a civilian government. But there have been few indications about when this will happen or even how. In May 2012, Mubarak was arrested. To punish Muhammad Hosni Sayyid Mubarak with life imprisonment for the charges leveled against him. In June 2012, Egypt finally held a free and fair democratic election. In an unexpected twist for many of the young activists who had demanded a revolution, it was the conservative, Islamist Mohamed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood that came to power. This is the happiest moment in my life. I would like to thank the whole world for sharing this moment with us. They didn't last long. Within a year, tension between Morsi and the military was reaching a bloody climax. And for Lena, she had just lost her job. Up until the spring of 2013, I was working in that newspaper I was working at uh, when the revolution broke out in 2011. It was one of the main privately owned newspapers in the country, and I was running their English edition. But in the spring of 2013, they felt they didn't need our services anymore. So I was unemployed alongside another 20 journalists who were working with me. But at the same time, we felt something major was happening with these protests in the lead up to June 30th. And we felt that it's important for us to continue our practice as independent journalists at this time. And while we couldn't find really a newspaper, an independent newspaper that had this equal position of distance from different sides of power in that year, it became inevitable to start our own, our own newspaper. That's how Mother Massa was born. And I think in some ways we were right with that intuition we had that something big was going to happen in the summer and it's going to mark a major transformation in the polity of this country for years to come. Sounds like it, it, was, it was the summer of a lot of action. For me it felt different. I was never able to come to terms with the fact that a big chunk of these protests were pro-military. I took it that people were quite concerned about the rule of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, I was also quite wary about what it would mean for the regime to shift in that way. I was also quite worried. It's a very conservative group that has no recognizable practice of democracy within their own echelons, let alone in the way they would run the country. 
Four days after the big call for protests of June 30th, the army uh, announced the ouster of Mohamed Morsi, the president and affiliate of the Muslim, of the Muslim Brotherhood, and arrested him and appointed a new government. And then ever since a systematic crackdown, specifically on the Brotherhood, and then uh, gradually and eventually for every opponent was, was manifesting. It all came to a head in mid-August, in what became the bloodiest day in modern Egyptian history. August the 14th brought a military massacre of Muslim Brotherhood supporters who'd been out protesting the removal of Mohamed Morsi. And it amounted into the killing of at least a thousand people in broad daylight in a massive traumatic event for many of us, even though we also stood against the Muslim Brotherhood. And I felt that being there that day, covering this violent event was yet another reason to prove that the intuition that something major was happening in the summer and we needed to be there as independent journalists to create a record out of it. And tell me, what was it like reporting on it? It was chaotic. People were dropping dead all around us. It's by chance that we survived it because bullets were just flying over us in the air. It was horrible. One of the most horrible things I had to witness as a journalist, counting the dead, blood everywhere, lots of unidentified corpses. And there was a moment where I had to run for my life. So it was horrible like that. It was a traumatic summer. The following year, General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi was sworn in as president, bringing the military back to power. He was Egypt's third president in three years, in a country where presidents usually lasted for decades. I remember covering that election. There were pro-military protests and women ululating at the polling stations as they voted for another strong leader and celebrated the removal of the Muslim Brotherhood. But there were also young activists who had fueled the revolution but were now too afraid to return to Tahrir Square or to protest openly, who saw this as a step back towards the sort of regime they thought they'd ended. In a moment, we'll hear what life has been like for a journalist under Sisi's government. But first, get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit times.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Crossroads wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information Mother managed to survive somehow all these years, despite mounting repression, targeting journalists, but really everyone else, activists, professors, artists. So we were quite lucky to survive, except that that day felt like that was also our going to be our end. The next date we moved to is November 26th, 2019. It's now been six years since Lena and her colleagues founded Madamasa, and six years since the bloody coup that ended Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood's time in power. Uh, a day before, our colleague, our news editor, was kidnapped from his house in front of his family in the middle of the night by security forces. And we learned later that it was because of an article... Uh, or because of content we published that the authorities didn't like. Over to Egypt and the latest crackdown on media. Over the weekend, security forces stormed the offices of an investigative media outlet. The raid began Sunday afternoon when nine security officers entered the office of independent news outlet Matamasser in Cairo, seizing phones and laptops and holding the staff in the building. And just as we were having a meeting to organize an advocacy campaign to demand his release. Police forces raided our office, held us about 20 journalists in custody while searching our office and interrogating some of us, and then eventually arrested me and a couple of other colleagues, taking us to jail just before a miracle broke out and we were released on the same day 
after mounting pressure from different groups. So it felt really like an incomplete trip to hell somehow that day. I felt when we were in the police truck, handcuffed one to the other, it was me and two other journalists working with me. I started wondering if this is going to be three years or 20 years or... Or, <laughs> or uh, I, I only expected the worst scenarios and I started thinking of all the things I needed to take care of, my brother, my family, my, my team members who are left behind in this chaos. I mean, what has it been like being a journalist under CC, under the current president? It hasn't been easy, but I was also, I'm also one of the lucky ones who so far managed to, by some sort of a miracle, to survive, to get going and so on. But it hasn't been easy and many have paid the price in prison sentences and pretrial detention and other forms of, of oppression. I mean, do you feel free to say, to report whatever you would like to? How much do you have to sort of censor yourself? I uh, try so much not to censor myself because I feel like it's a psychological trap if you start censoring yourself. Uh, there's no end game for it. So I try as much as possible to, to um, refrain from self-censorship. But at the same time, I have a lot of fear and I'm ashamed of myself. And I feel like the fear is only growing as I grow older. And I miss the times when I was younger and, and more fearless. The circumstances under which we live, it's inevitable to have fear. But it's one thing to recognize that there is fear. And it's another thing to also know how to navigate it, to maneuver it, to park it on the side when you're just about to engage in a risky endeavor. What has it been like living under, under a CC government? What kind of a leader is he? Can you skip this question? He doesn't like us to talk about him. I think that says a lot. <laughs> I just don't think our president likes us to talk about him, which is quite irregular because presidents are made presidents to be criticized primarily. But yeah, it is what it is. Mother Maso was blocked in Egypt in 2017. Since then, Lena says it's been a game of cat and mouse. Every time the authorities shut it down, the site automatically regenerates in a new domain. They're now on version 29. It's been a long and tough 10 years. In some ways, it's harder than ever for Lena and her colleagues to work as independent journalists. And these days... Lena avoids Tahrir Square. I feel quite estranged uh, by it. There is this very intentional and sort of violent takeover uh, of the government, of the square. Uh, and that's manifested in different things, from the intense securitization, constant police presence, to the urban regeneration that's happening there that's all centered around depoliticizing it, stripping it of its political memory. So 
all of these things make me feel like a stranger. But that's also okay because I feel that revolution has to have its locus pretty much everywhere, including inside ourselves. So I'm okay with not having to to go to Tahrir Square. I'm certainly not that nostalgic about it. And I just prefer to move on. And looking back now, you know, with, with hindsight and with the sense of the revolution being incomplete, was, you know, do you feel that life was better a decade ago than it, than it is now? You know, as a journalist, would you have been freer to write what you wanted to? I mean, from a professional perspective, there's something easier about the margin in which we operated before the revolution because it was a slightly larger margin where we could also sort of control the boundaries a bit, expand it a bit, be repressed a bit. But there was something of dynamic in, in operating within a margin under an authoritarian rule. And right now, this margin feels much tighter. Room for maneuver feels much uh, smaller. But at the same time, I feel there's something unproductive with this kind of comparison because we've only got the present and we're living in a thick present. And for you and your friends and people you speak to, I mean, do you ever regret the revolution? No. I never regret the revolution. It's one of the nicest things that I've witnessed. Just to say there's no room for regret in something like this. Of course, how it evolved and the different things that we could have done differently is an exercise of revisionism that we're responsible for as critical thinkers, as, as journalists. Um, but I don't know that regret is, uh, is, is a productive sentiment at all, you know? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Lena Atala, founder and editor of Mother Massa. The producer today was Asir Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story that you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or any thoughts on what you've just heard, please do email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Jacqueline Gold, in her own words, now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. 
hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer ready skin is here. Osea's number one best selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.